Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining our first webcast of 2015. Today, we're pleased to present From Lean Government to Lean Healthcare, Broader Applications of Lean Startup. I'm Melissa Moore, executive producer of the Lean Startup Conference, happening November 16 to 19 in San Francisco. Visit leanstartup.co for more information. Our speakers today are Anish Chopra and Eric Rees. Anish Chopra is the co-founder of Hunch Analytics and serves as a member of the Council on Virginia's Future. From 2009 to 2012, he served <coughs> as the first U.S. Chief Technology Officer. Anish is author of the book Innovative State, How New Technologies Can Transform Government. Eric Rees is author of The Lean Startup and the forthcoming Leader's Guide. He's also the host of the Lean Startup Conference. Just a few housekeeping notes. We'll take questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, just flag that with a Q colon. The speakers will answer questions in the second half of this webcast. No need to ask your questions twice. This is a one-hour program, and the recording will be available a few days after this live webcast. Take it away, Anish and Eric. Hey, Anish. Hey, Eric. Great to connect. Good to see you again. Well, I, uh, I'm fired up. And uh, spoiler alert, uh, in Innovative State, the book that I wrote, there's a whole chapter dedicated in homage to Eric and the Lean Startup movement and how it has uh, incredible opportunity in the public sector. In fact, Eric, that's, uh, that's how we, maybe we should get started right there, if you don't mind. Yeah, well, you know, let me make sure that, that people know that uh, I heard a rumor that Innovative State is coming out in paperback. Is that right? <laughs> that's exactly right. I'm working actually, on that edition right now. It's a great book. People should totally check it out. It's really, uh, I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. So, uh, in fact, uh, I say that, uh, spoiler alert, with all seriousness, in that uh, we had a startup in the government. When the president came into office, he wanted to tackle, uh, you know, some of the root causes for our economic uh, challenges at the time, the uh, mortgage crisis and a lot of the consumer uh, financial products were part, not entirely, but part of the root causes that led us to the to the fiscal uh, challenges of, of the time. And we birthed a new agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And I called my good friend Tim O'Reilly and I said, Tim, uh, Elizabeth Warren, who the president asked to help start this new agency, get it off the ground. Uh, basically asked that we think about building the first agency of the 21st century as opposed to the last agency in the 20th. And he invited you and uh, DJ Patel, who's now the White House Chief Data Scientist, and a number of other thought leaders to help give us some advice. And I remember, uh, Eric, I had met you maybe two years earlier, year and a half earlier, because a grouper, uh, it was a larger, larger group discussion, you'd ask the, the question, I said, how can we make the climate better for startups, give us a flavor for what government can do to make things better, get out of the way. You had a really thoughtful story about how entrepreneurs were, because the tools have made it so easy for them to get off the ground quickly, they could literally in a weekend prototype or get some early ideas. And so you're, uh, you, know, you, you, you gave some very inspiring comments, but I didn't have a direct uh, response to some questions from you until this Consumer Bureau uh, discussion. And I don't know if you remember this, Eric, but the key feature that we spoke of were some assumptions that were in the government's uh, rule. When the, when the government created the Consumer Protection Bureau, one of the requirements was to build a call center so that the American people could reach out and register their complaint. And I shared the fact that, you know, we have to build for three million expected calls or 
some number, and uh, we just had taken that for granted, and we said, okay, how should we approach this? Is there a cloud-first model? And, and what did you say to me? You said, Anish, uh, where did that three million figure come from, right? I, re I remember that conversation really well because I, I didn't even, I, I wasn't trying to be provocative or anything. I was just trying to, you know, understand the situation so that I could uh, talk intelligently about it. So I'm like, where, where is this three million number? And I remember exactly what you said. It was something like, well, it came from Congress. <laughs> exactly. Like, it did. Well, well, where did they get it? <laughs> you know, where and, it and that led us down this immediate workshopping session in the middle of dinner, which was, okay, why don't we put out flyers in a section of San Francisco encouraging folks to call if they had a consumer complaint. We could test. Is it 2% of the population have a complaint? Is it 30? Uh, and then you introduced me to Twilio. Yeah. And you said, uh, wait a minute. Um, we could literally walk over to Twilio and we could write an IVR script and, and start to see push one to complain about credit cards, push two to complain. And I, literally my jaw dropped and I thought, oh my goodness, this is not the DNA for how we were thinking, well, we're going to hire Booz Allen, they're going to do a report, we're going to do a study for the most cost-effective way to build the call center. Yeah, so, two years later. Two years later. And, yeah. and uh, I will say uh, your enthusiasm and, frankly, your volunteer effort because you came to Washington on a number of occasions. We didn't write a big government contract to you, did we, Eric? No, no. No, and you I'm advised... Not a, I'm, I'm not a government contractor. You're though. not a government contractor. And here you are. You advised the Consumer Protection Bureau... Uh, Todd Park, when he was CTO of the Health and Human Services Department, and on behalf of the American people, I want to say thank you. Oh gosh! <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny about that about that story is, um, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I I had heard I follow the news like anybody. I'd heard the president had appointed somebody to be the nation's first chief technology officer. That sounded that sounded pretty good to me, but I didn't really know what that meant, and I certainly didn't know. You know what to expect from this guy showing up in Silicon Valley from from Washington, and of course, you know Anish is great, and as all you, you all get to see here. But what impressed me the most, not just in that initial meeting, but in the months that followed, was that usually when you have these these meetings with various luminary people and you tell them stuff like that's the last you ever hear about it. They're like pat you on the head, like thanks kid, appreciate that advice, you know whatever. We'll we'll take it under take it under consideration, whatever. So I yeah, that's what I was expecting to be honest. I was like, well, no, I'll never hear about this again, and. My next trip to D.C., you know, I remember Anish, you know, took me to go see the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and meet the people who were doing the things that we had talked about. And I was like, wait a minute, did people actually listening to, to what people are saying and trying to adopt best practices from industry? Like I was, you know, I was pretty surprised. And what's interesting to me now, so, you know, and what, through Anish's efforts and his successor, Todd Park, who we just mentioned, you know, there's been this incredible adoption of these lean principles inside of the government to do not just Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, but at HHS and immigration. Maybe we'll get to talk about some of those examples. But the funny thing to me now that I get to go talk about it, I mentioned it briefly in my book, and of course, Anisha's book goes into it in great detail. It's like no one in America knows this is happening. Because it, you, if you, you could watch cable news and every political show about government every night for a year and watch people screaming at each other, left, right, this, that, big, small, you wouldn't hear about any of this stuff because it doesn't, it doesn't fit the model of what people expect from government. It doesn't quite fit anybody's – so it's like it's a completely invisible, and yet every American who's listening to the webcast right now, like you right now are funding these really cool initiatives. I think you have a right to know more about it, so – well, I uh, will help illuminate illuminate what's going on. Well, and and the DNA and this and webcasts like this will hopefully bring uh, more visibility into those who are 
hungry to bring these principles, whether it be to the public sector or as we'll talk about the healthcare sector. Uh, we're so hungry for uh, this kind of experimentation, learning, and then rolling out and scaling up the best, uh, the best of those ideas, which is uh, it's going to be a, a very exciting time to be in the public and regulated sectors of the economy. I yeah. think, in fact, Steve Case's comment, just he wrote an op-ed maybe a week ago in the Washington Post, he calls this the third wave of the Internet, is where the impact of the Internet starts to really uh, be manifest in these traditionally regulated or publicly run sectors. And so it's a pretty big chunk of our economy ready to, to take advantage of the capabilities. And new startups will emerge that will embody your principles. We'll see lots of failure, but lots of learning <laughs> yeah, along the no, way. Totally. Well, maybe, you know, I, I see we got a question from the audience about this already, and that's actually the question I wanted to ask too, which is just, you know, could you kind of just, for people who are new to this, mm -hmm. can you walk us through a couple of examples of these ideas playing out in government that may, you know, are not what people would kind of expect to happen? They're a little bit yeah. different than the usual. So I, I uh, uh, the Senate appointed me, uh, confirmed me uh, upon the President's appointment, it was like May uh, 20th of 2009. And within a week or so, the president was in a meeting with Senator John McCain where the topic was immigration reform. And it was not clear that uh, any big legislative breakthrough was upon us. So the president used the occasion to issue a challenge that even if we couldn't make progress on the legislative front at that time, we should basically build a more customer-friendly immigration department. I mean, if you actually went to a group of folks who had to interact with the immigration department, you know, those looking to get a visa, uh, it probably wouldn't rank high on your list. It wouldn't be high on the net promoter score there, Eric Reese. I don't think it would have been uh, all that favorable. So the president issues this challenge. We didn't have much context or history, and he turned to Secretary Napolitano and said, you know, can you help bring this, this concept to life? And Vivek Kundra, the chief information officer, and I went over to the immigration uh, department and we found ourselves in the midst of a billion dollar IT transformation project whose first deliverable Eric wasn't until two or three years later where feedback from customers wasn't I don't even think on the list it was like well waterfall development it, oh yeah. my goodness classic well stand in line oh we'll add the portal to that in some future iteration we said no. The president gave us 90 days, and and what allowed what we what we started to do is sort of listen to customer feedback, and it turns out that a big chunk of the anxiety, Eric, was just not knowing where you were in the queue, and so we thought let's flip this upside down. We're not going to actually fix the underlying systems overnight, but we're going to shine light on where there are bottlenecks, and that might help to unclog the arteries. So within 90 days, we had produced the new portal where the default setting was we're going to, like Burger King, have it your way. We can text message you or we can uh, put on the website. We organized where your application is in seven buckets. And the co conclusion was uh, we can tell you what the hang-up is. And sometimes the hang-up is you. Like, hey, we've got all the information we need, but we're missing a, a, a fingerprint for you know, one of the application steps. And folks would be like, oh, I didn't realize that you needed that. Let me go get it. So it just reduced the anxiety. And so here's the conclusion. After we iterated and rolled out the service, uh, believe it or not, the immigration portal jumped from like back of the pack to front of the pack in customer satisfaction. And it was the number one site for Hispanic-focused 
uh, interactions. And so, you know, your, your principles were spot on and they were at the hallmark of two or three other examples in these 90-day sprints to listen to customers, put a prototype out, get feedback, and then, and then re repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And, and that, that's been a great part of our journey. Talk about the resistance maybe that you, you got from other folks in the government who are used to working in these you know, multi-year, multi-billion dollar boondoggle-like waterfall systems. You come in being like, hey, we're do minimum viable product, we're going to do it in 90 days. And like the first time you told me one of these stories, when you said 90 days, I thought what you meant was like, oh, we'd spend 90 days studying the problem. Exactly. And then another 90 days, like debating it, and then another 90, you know, like, because I didn't really believe that you meant, that you, I remember the first time you were like, no, no, 90 days from concept to implementation for customers. Yes. Iterations. And I was like, oh, that's startup speed. That made sense to me. I'm like, hey, that, now you're speaking my language. But I, I couldn't even imagine what people in the government were saying, you know, first time you proposed that. Well, the, 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 the good news was I wasn't the voice of proposing it. So when the president makes the statement two weeks into my, my being on the job, yeah. he said, in 90 days, we oh, will. Done. And so, and, and, and a similar example with the, the president gave a speech to the disabled veterans of America, and he said, this fall, I will give you a blue button that you can push to download safely and securely an electronic copy of your personal health information. And, and, and the first version of that, Eric, to your point, got you a de minimis amount of information, yeah. but now, you know, iteration after iteration, you can get your full health record from the VA at that push of a blue button. And I would say three things. One, you needed the president's call to action, and we were there to execute his uh, vision. Mm -hmm. Number two, we had to punch a hole. This is Todd Parks, uh, uh, to his credit, he characterized it this way. We found ourselves in this wall of disbelief where literally it was not so much don't do this or we can't do this or what have you. It was a sense of disbelief like this can't be true. We can't actually have a minimum viable product up in 90 days and get customer feedback because if that, if that MVP had something wrong or we had mistakenly done something, where we released the wrong information, we'd be on the front page of the New York Times and I'd be hauled out in front of Congress to get uh, fired. So we had this wall of disbelief, but the good news is that it was a paper-thin wall, Eric. You just had to punch a couple of holes in it and you could see, wait a minute, we can do this. And uh, the final piece, frankly, was this sort of feedback loop, which is when Secretary Napolitano turns around the 90-day deliverable, personally commits to getting it done, shows up at the launch, the president in the next cabinet meeting says, I want to point out that Secretary Napolitano did an amazing thing. And now each of the agencies get the message and it becomes part of the DNA as to what's valued and rewarded in the organization. Mm -hmm. And so, so you, you went through these kind of initial, very skeptical, but you know, very successful implementations and like they were relatively small things to start with, right? You know, like texting people their immigration status. I mean, that, I mean, believe me, having interacted with that system, like, that's about, it makes Slightly better. better. Yeah, yeah. It, that's certainly better than it was before, but that's not exactly a change in the world. And then, you know, next thing I know, I'm hearing about stories at the FDA, you know, at the Pentagon, like like starting to be like much more substantial uh, projects. And then, you know, fast forward, and then you know the Presidential Innovation Fellows, and now it's really like, you know, there's whole new agencies of government dedicated to this way of working. We'll get Correct. to the kind of like what's happening today, but I'm really curious, like. What, what was your experience of like how did the scale up happen like how did you build momentum how did you kind of nurture it and kind of t get it to the next stage from like yeah. a couple of isolated I could imagine people being like well okay you got one thing done congratulations but it's still not a general purpose method you know yeah so in a sense the most powerful weapon that I offered was air cover 
So what we ended up finding is that they, there were a few change agents who actually wanted to do something, and we picked initiatives where the agency had enough of a burning need that they could actually get it done. And FDA is a classic example because not known to be a nimble or agile organization, you, you know, healthcare generally takes 17 years to have an idea that a researcher says this is the way healthcare should be delivered to being uh, best demonstrated practice out in the field is a 17-year journey. The FDA had been beaten up. It takes forever to get approvals for new drugs, new devices, etc. And so Congress was trying to speed it up, speed it up, speed it up, and, and, and the administration kind of at the top level wanted to do the same thing. But it turns out that if you define the problem more accurately, it, one of the issues was we had a culture where it was sort of a in, 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 in sequence versus in parallel evaluation. And so, you know, you'd, you'd have the FDA with their arms waiting for the tech firms or the, uh, the, the pharmaceutical firms to kind of produce the data. Then they show up at the door and the agency, well, this is not, these are not the answers to the questions that I have. Go back and do it again. Mm-hmm. And so we said, okay, what if we could create this culture? So the, uh, the president wanted to see change and the administrator of the FDA wanted to see change. And so we said, let's scope narrow for breakthrough medical devices that could help you live a dramatically better life in areas where there's not as much capital flowing. People on kidney dialysis, for example. So we said, okay, let's develop a new innovation pathway where you can opt in as a medical device company and we're gonna co-create with you a new model where it's a little uncomfortable for you and for the agency. You might share some early data. You don't want us to kill you before you're out of the gate, but you wanna get some feedback and how do you create the incentives so that we don't overdo it or underdo it? And so the innovation pathway kind of took that, that was not 90 days, that was a six month journey, but it was still uh, agile uh, in its mindset. And so once these two or three examples started hitting, healthcare.gov, which we'll, we'll get into I hope momentarily, the first version was, was probably the highest profile success story uh, it, it, at the time this model was being employed, that once two or three of these were off and running, it then became part of the DNA, and we started disseminating these as, as, as best practices. And then Todd, after uh, he took over, built that into the Presidential Innovation Fellows, and it's three to five, five to eight, and now it's like in the DNA of virtually every cabinet agency. One of the techniques that I, I stole from you guys that I thought was just totally brilliant, I use this all the time now, um, when you were building, I guess, for the, the, the predecessor to, to the Presidential Innovation Fellows, when it was still called the Entrepreneurs in Residence That's right. program, and then eventually the Presidential Innovation. So, so for people who are not familiar with these terms, basically these are programs that bring in outside talent, like entrepreneurs, into the federal government and allow them to team up with uh, teams inside of the agencies. And they build these kind of lean startup teams with a limited short-term mandate, 90 days, six months. And they're, they're a partnership between internal people and external people to go yes. build something. And there's, you know, there's... Anish probably could give us examples of the cool things they built all day long. And um, the, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was uh, the way you guys chose which projects yes. get to have the EIRs on them, and there was kind of like an internal bidding system. And can you yeah. talk about, about how that system works? I thought that was really clever. Well, once we realized that we could punch a hole through one of the barriers, which is how do you actually source the talent? I mean. HR systems in government, you know, it's like ni- it's not ni- it's 90 days to get the first piece of paper filed that you want to hire a person, right? It's like 180 days to get to hiring. So all this sounds great, but if you truly wanted to match the best and the brightest outside and inside, you had to find alternative pathways. Once we cracked the code that this was possible, 
then it became a floodgate of interest to say, oh, you can help me find this type of talent and I can bypass the HR nightmare that we go through. And once the demand flipped from like us begging and recruiting to people realizing that this could actually work, um, the idea was to start to establish like a, no, only if you definitely commit, show me your leader, you know, how committed are you to this project? What will you bring to the table? And then you'll have the right to sponsor uh, one of the projects on the other end. And it really flipped the model and it created competition amongst the, the department heads to say, how serious are you at wanting to bring change? Now, it coincided, Eric, with what became obvious after the, um, the midterm elections in 2010, that, that innovation and entrepreneurship in the public sector through legislative improvements right. didn't quite make the cut. So, you know, I, I don't want to suggest to you that this is all because we figured out a way to do an entrepreneurship and residence program, but rather simultaneously the other avenue of their time would have been like, let's go work on a bill. It was like, oh my goodness, we've got to turn inward now. What can we do administratively? And and so these two things came in together to create that that that, that spike in demand for us to pick the projects for the uh, agencies to adopt. Yeah, I mean, translating that into the private sector for those of you who are tuning in, you know, from big companies. I, I always you know, I, I talk to a lot of people in the private sector, like, oh, my company's really bureaucratic. Oh, it's really political. And I'm like, more political than Obamacare? <laughs> more bureaucratic than the FDA? Are you sure? Because if they're doing it, what's your excuse? So I use that all the time. So thank you for that. That really helps. Um, but also. You know, when people are thinking about how do I drive this change internally, like that, the model that you've had, I see that replicated a lot. You have a kind of some kind of external crisis or change in the environment that has created a need, like a recognized need for change. So it's one thing for the company to need to change, but it's another thing for the company to realize that it needs to change and, be, and have the executive leadership of the company like interested in change. And then to build a program where the department leaders or the PL leaders are like bidding for the privilege of getting to be part of the change and the bid is not money. You're not asking for money, you're asking for their personal Commitment. leadership and support to say who's most committed to this. That is a really smart model because then the teams that get chosen to be the kind of vanguard of the change, they're the ones that actually have the air cover, they have the leadership support that's needed to, to get things going and you know these things, the first projects are always the most difficult. Yes. Space maximum resistance, that's when you need the leadership. We're getting tons of questions now coming in but before we get to them, we got to talk about healthcare.gov. Yes. Because I think when I talk to people about IT in government, like pretty much most Americans and as far as I can tell, most global <coughs> citizens are like, well, the one the one story I saw in the news about IT in government was the colossal catastrophic failure of healthcare.gov. Uh, so tell us that story. And then most people don't realize this. The story they saw in the news was the failure of the second healthcare.gov. So maybe also tell us the story of the first healthcare.gov. So let's start with the, uh, the bad and we'll end on the high note, which is the yeah. good. So uh, when the administration was funded to go build out the uh, uh, healthcare.gov marketplace, the original assumptions were that each of the 50 states were going to build their own versions of healthcare.gov. They were the front doors. One of those and great assumptions from Congress. One of those great assumptions from Congress. Although that, to be very honest, was sort of a collective wisdom, which is why wouldn't you? Like, if I could give you a free method of putting your face on the service that's going to give millions of your residents uh, uh, health care, wouldn't you want to be on that, especially if you're not paying for the site, you're actually just taking credit for it in the final lap. So it was, didn't strike me as a particularly hard deal to strike. Uh, however, the back end, which was the healthcare.gov hub, if you will, 
the connection the connection points to the IRS data. You have to be an you can't be an immigrant. You got to be a citizen. You get all these different legal constraints based on data that we can validate. So on day one, the healthcare.gov team really did have a roadmap, which was heavy emphasis on the back end and this gray political issue of are we supposed to be just the enabling ingredients for the states, or are they going to hand over the whole kit and caboodle to us? And so there was a huge vacuum on requirements. I don't want to say it in such a technical way, but basically there was a debate, like what, what, where, where do we end up going? And it took a while to sort of sort out the political uh, uh, kind of end, end goal. And while this was happening, the team on the ground had to make some tough choices, which was how are they going to actually execute this project? Now, I don't want to blame, but I want to put in context the reliance on the government contractors to do the work, and it was this. If the agency chose a fair and open competition and said, who's the best in America that can build for us this healthcare.gov portal, this e-commerce site, um, it would have had a year's delay of just the beginnings of the procurement, and then after they would have awarded it, there would have inevitably have been a protest because in, in Washington now the default setting is you protest when somebody beats you on a contract. So you automatically delay another six to eight months on the back end. So you're talking two years of just bureaucracy before a single line of code could even be written. So you understand what they actually did, which was they had a pre-qualified list from 2007 of a dozen or so government contractors who have PhDs in procurement physics, even though may not have the DNA of, of actually building up the site. And, and that group was the pre-qualified list that said, okay, we're going to only ask of you uh, how, how to pursue this, this, this requirement. And so you kind of, you knew from the outset that it was going to be a different animal. And uh, unfortunately, that's exactly what we had. We had, we had a relatively, you know, traditional procurement, you, would, you and I would describe this as a waterfall methodology, let's go set about the requirements and let's go hit these requirements and, this, and then, oh by the way, go live is going to be literally a big bang moment. We're going to flip the switch and the whole country will go live. This idea of testing it in Toledo or something was, wasn't in the, in the mix. So that was the unfortunate. You could see all the attributes of failure uh, in hindsight, which may not have been as obvious on the front end as to what was going on. But that was uh, really outside of the scope of where uh, Todd, myself, and others were, were engaged. That was really an agency making financial decisions. When you have very little money, you have no procurement, you can actually think of things more of a, a, an MVP model. So yeah. in the Congress, th that's the good side of the story. This, the bill is signed into law in March of 2010. In January, before the bill is even signed, a guy named Ed Mullen, who is a designer from New Jersey, thinks that if the American people could see what these exchanges look like, they might call their congressman and say, please pass this bill. So he designs healthcare.gov version one on his own, no procurement, contract, funding, just does it as, as a wireframe and tweets the resulting imagery at the White House, at mentions the White House. And my colleague, Macon Phillips, who ran the President's Digital, said, whoa, this is pretty good stuff. So when the bill is ultimately signed and we have like 90 plus days to turn on version one of healthcare.gov, which had a very simple scope, Eric, build the window to a catalog of every public and privately sold insurance product in America. As goofy as those products are, they could deny you care, they could upcharge you, they could have all kinds of wacky terms. Uh, 
those deserve at least a, a window or a spotlight. Ed becomes our first hire to be the lead graphic designer. And sure enough, under Todd's leadership, Todd and Megan, the, the gentleman I mentioned at the White House uh, Digital, formed the leadership structure, recruits an internal team with some external talent, they feed them with two pizzas, they work them for two months, three months, and out becomes this, this simple, open, uh, searchable uh, platform, which by the way, final point Eric, was open by default. All the underlying data, so even if you never thought to visit healthcare.gov, if someone watching this webcast said, I, I went to the US News Health Insurance Finder, that was much better. Well, it turns out that that was entirely powered by the data from that healthcare.gov site. We just opened up the API. And now close the loop all the way when Uber surveys their drivers and finds out that 60% of them are having a hard time shopping for plans, Uber is able to point to a startup called Stride Health to say, can you personalize recommendations for these folks? Stride builds their algorithms and recommendations engines on top of that same healthcare.gov data. You know, it's a common theme, you know, we've talked about over the years, which is, you know, using government data, you know, as a catalyst and an enabler for innovation in the private sector. Uh, I, one thing i got to underline, though, I, I don't know if people caught this, but, like, uh, Anish is very diplomatic as, as is his, you know, as is his skill, but I, I, I can be a little bit less diplomatic. If you follow this timeline, the government in 90 days built the first healthcare.gov on a shoestring budget, you know, because nobody was paying attention. It wasn't considered super high priority. And all this cool stuff happened. I mean, I remember that team and, and seeing Todd Park, like they had analytics built into the site so they could figure out where people were clicking. They used the data exactly. they were gathering to improve the site. And, and one of the things I remember, they, they took that data and they would take it back to the insurance companies and say, listen, people right now on our site are searching for plans with data that you haven't provided us. Could you give us a little bit more data? So instead of mandating and requiring, they got people to voluntarily give them additional data. The site got better and better. So they have this iterative, agile healthcare.gov. The law passes, and now it's time to set up the real healthcare.gov, you know, the important one that all Americans will use. And it's like, well, now that we're doing something important, you got to throw this thing away, <laughs> this agile, scrappy thing. Like, that goes right. We need government contractors in here. Give me some defense contractors. Like, we need to spend. You know, we, we can't feed pizzas to the team. We need to feed them, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, and we need to do it waterfall and of course you get this really public disaster and one of the great things about that is you know the response inside the government to that disaster has been you know to really move in a different direction so maybe just before we move on to open data and some of the other topics can you just talk about what's been catalyzed and what kind of what's happening in the government now well I mean you know obviously the anger from the president on down I mean when was the president last time you heard the president of the United States say I'm gonna dig into fixing the government procurement problem or what have you yeah. Not a topic that ever gets that kind of attention, but uh, every cabinet agency got the message, do you want to preside over the next healthcare.gov? And so they're like, wait a second, the negative side is how bad the rollout was. The positive side was how a small team of eight to ten folks could help better orient the hundreds that were still on staff, Eric. It's not like they worked outside of the rest of the team. They, they just instilled a discipline and a rigor that reoriented the, the bulk of the work the team had done, cleaned up the management structure, huddled, made tough decisions, but executed on those decisions. So they said, I want that DNA on every project going forward. And so Todd, and part of the reason why he's moved from being the chief technology officer to the president's recruiter in chief, is he's come back to the Bay Area 
and is literally knocking on the door of every you know transitional senior executive with startup experience who's like yellow highlighted your book Eric and he's basically said if, if you can pass the Eric Reese lean startup quiz I want you to join the Department of the Veterans Affairs or uh, you know immigration or you name it and so now it is I mean you cannot imagine a team of greater talent our new CTO Megan Smith rock star her first deputy AMAC, general counsel at Twitter. Next deputy, DJ Patil, former chief data scientist at LinkedIn. What Todd, Todd calls him the Michael Jordan of data science from a, a recruitment standpoint. You've got uh, uh, Ed Felton just came yeah, in. Felton, the legendary Ed Felton. I and couldn't so believe that when I read that. One by one by one, uh, the team is coming in, and more to come. I mean, I you know, it's just yeah. even the folks at the dinner where I met you for that uh, more thoughtful time. Half of the folks around that table are now finding their way into the government, which is a great story. One of the co-founders of Twilio, I think, joined the program. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So all, all it all comes full circle, Eric. Your, your advice: we experiment, we test it, you know, do a little pivoting, and now all of a sudden we've got a, a full-blown program. Yeah, it's 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 exciting to see. And like I said, most people don't know if you're if you don't know the story of that healthcare.gov turnaround that was like a really in-depth. I think it was Time Magazine did an in-depth profile. Yes. Like, it's it's worth reading because it's it's such a great example of the power of methodology over technology or any other impediment, right? That's like, right. There, this multi-year disaster that no one thought could be fixed was turned around in a matter of what was it like six weeks? I mean, yes. Incredibly fast, and they didn't fire everybody. They didn't get a whole new team. They didn't they didn't switch from legacy technology to the cloud. No. Like you know, like no. they didn't have time for any of that stuff. No. They just changed the philosophy of how people were working in the accountability systems. And That's exactly right. You take the most dysfunctional IT rollout in history and you turn it into something that gets, you know, what was it, eight million Americans healthcare. Like that I don't think people even appreciate the magnitude of that turnaround and what it means about, you know, how work can and should be done. Anyway, it's a it's a very cool it's a very cool story, worth worth reading if you haven't checked it out. Yeah. So let's talk healthcare. Yeah. We're, so we're open data, we're you know, all the rest. I mean, you know, we're getting a lot of questions here. The questions are pouring in now on um, you know, how do you apply this way of thinking in healthcare? You know, how does data, like, while well, the privacy issues in data and healthcare, like, people hear open data in healthcare, I think maybe the first thing that pops in their head is not something quite so positive. So maybe just, like, give us an orientation to um, you know, your experiences in trying to drive innovation in healthcare. Well, this is the most important point of the webcast, Eric, because we are literally on the cusp of unleashing the healthcare industry's first open public API. And, and what we need more than ever are folks to participate, to test, so that we can iterate the standards and make them, make them work. Um, where we are is the following, Eric. And we've, since the time we've gotten into the administration, had a simple formula for fixing the healthcare delivery system. If we can open up the data the government's previously held, and most of that is in the Medicare department, meaning the Medicare database is the most thoughtful lens on the performance of the healthcare system. If we can open up as much of that data as possible and we can take the manila folders in doctors' offices and hospitals and turn them into digital health assets which could then connect to each other and we combine these two sources of data with a financial model that rewards people to analyze that information to help keep you out of the hospital. If I can anticipate a terrible step in your healthcare journey and I can intervene to do something that either can help you avoid the hospital altogether or to maybe route you to a lower 
acuity outpatient setting, we will literally bend the healthcare cost curve and frankly save the American economy because healthcare is literally the biggest driver of our national deficit. It's like what, 20% of GDP or something? It, 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 is, it is hitting 20% of GDP and if you look at the, like the, the if you blew out the deficit uh, and the debt going out another several couple decades, you're going to find that like three quarters of it is all tied to Medicare and Medicaid inflation. So literally fixing healthcare, applying these three uh, new f trends, the opening up of government data, the interoperability of health IT and the payment reform models. Will, will literally mean will we make or break it, will we put the money we need into climate change, into educating the next generation, will we can free up the capital to do those things if we can fix these, this sector. So what happened? Well, the open data side worked quite well. We started opening up as much government aggregate data as possible. And explain what you mean by that, because I think some people are like, wait a minute, my, my Medicare records are going to be floating around on the internet. Like, yeah, so, 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 open data in healthcare? So, so here's an example. If you're going to go blind, Eric, we have this miraculous intervention, which is I can inject a drug into your eye and I can prevent you from going blind. Right? Yay, America! That's, like, that's great. One of those injections is $2,000 a pop. The other one is 50. And the National Institute of Health said that it's basically a clinically equivalent intervention. You can do both. Well, Medicare has a list of exactly what every doctor in America did. Does this doctor preference the $2,000 drug over the $50 drug or inverted? And by opening up that kind of information, all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute. If, if I want to build a network where great doctors who care for you in a thoughtful way can do so at 99% less the cost or 98% less the cost and have comparable outcomes, maybe we can naturally steer ourselves towards those providers. Today, that's an opaque measure because you don't have access to that information but Medicare does. Now it's not revealing that a niche got this drug injected, but it says in aggregate X number of patients got this drug versus that drug. And those kinds of insights come out of the opening up of, of, of aggregate data on the performance of, of the uh, system. But we also felt, well, I'm a niche and I'd like to have my own health records. And there was this law called HIPAA which says I'm protected to make sure that my data isn't flying around the cloud, but while I don't want it flying around the cloud, I want a copy in my books because, God forbid, I get sick. I want doctors to know the meds that I'm on so that yep. they don't prescribe one that they didn't know I'm already on and, and, and give me an adverse effect. So we said, basically, the new rule, if, if I hold data on you electronically and you request it, I have to give it to you. And if I don't, the government's going to fine me $20,000 a day for each day I withhold access to that information. But we've kind of, it's been a gnarly problem to solve, Eric, so the question is if you literally went to the, I mean, you and I touch what are relatively healthy, but if you went to the local hospital, said, can I have a copy of my data, give me my electronic copy, you know, they're still giving you like a USB drive or a CD-ROM, and so the question is, why can't I have an API? <coughs> Not because I want the API, but I want to route that API to a designated app. Uh, one of the Y Combinator companies, Picnic Health, says, hey, for a couple hundred bucks, whatever the number is, I'll give you a thoughtful place to store and organize all of your health records. Hey, that's pretty cool. Maybe I want that. So I want to have my data in Picnic Health uh, pulled out of all the source systems. So today, about maybe three months ago, uh, a group of folks gathered and said, how can we adopt the same lean startup principles to the idea of should there be a common technical approach 
to both expose the data and, and to define what that information, once I have access to it, what do I get? Mm -hmm. And so we ran a code and documentation sprint called Argonaut Project. It's called www.argonautproject.org. And it was a response to a governmental JSON report. So you have the JSON report, you have the Argonaut Task Force. And so the Argonauts came in and said, what we want to do is uh, get a, a version 0 0.5. Here are the specs. They were published last week at argonautproject.org. We have a dummy test server with uh, 10,000 patients that are kind of dummy data. And you as an app developer can plug right in and say, hey, give me the API to their records so I can look at their meds list, their problem list, etc." And the president uh, proposed a new healthcare rule which said, hey, in the next and final round of our incentive program, we've been putting government incentives to get the health records digitized. We're going to ask that there be this standardized API available for every patient from every doctor and hospital that participates in the program. So the yin and the yang, Eric, is we need to get feedback on the proposed specs so when the government ultimately locks this thing down, it's not like brittle and broken and insufficient, yeah. but it's gotten that, that, that benefit of our, our collective input. I really, I mean, what I really appreciate the idea that that the records are owned by the person that the records are about. I mean, it's such a simple idea and it's so obvious in retrospect, but, you know, before I heard about the blue button and, and these things, I, you know, every proposal I had seen for EHRs you know, had always envisioned that the records are magically transferred from provider to provider for right. me. It's a little bit infantilizing. And, and I just now, and I, whenever I go to the hospital, go to the doctor, and I see that they pull up my record on their system, and there's always a mistake. I mean, I can't think of the last time. I, I think I, I don't know if I told you the story, Anisha. My, you know, my wife was pregnant. Uh, we we just had our uh, a baby uh, uh, a year and a half ago. Congratulations! Thank you so much. He's very cute. And uh, when we, we she was maybe eight months pregnant. I mean, it was very far along in the, in the third trimester. We go in for a prenatal appointment. The nurse pulls up our record and she says, oh, "I'm sorry. It says here that your pregnancy is resolved." <laughs> what does that mean? And we're like, what does that mean? She's like, well, you know, you're not pregnant anymore. My wife is sitting there two feet from her. She's like, you know, as a pregnant lady is wont to do, like a little bit on edge. Like, you yeah. know, take, take a look. Does this look resolved to you? You know, like it was, it was crazy. It's like, you know, some clerical error. And it, what, it's so crazy because like if we had access to those records, we could have, you know, periodically checked in with them before we you know, prepare for our appointment, make sure everything looks in order. Like we could catch those mistakes when they got made. Imagine if I got a text message, hey, your record's been updated. You want to check it out. So, like, like the idea that the the patient is the person whose record it is, and that then you know if they are the ones who have ownership and responsibility for it. I think is such a cool idea. And, and it's, it ends up being a cheaper architecture, Eric, because all I have to do that is authenticate and 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 yeah. uh, 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 organize the data to you. And so the role of OAuth, you know, uh, the opportunity to to basically run that handshake, we can use those simpler technologies and uh, they've been working well in the internet economy. There's no reason why we couldn't bring them to the digital health economy. So we had to wrap a little bit more of a security layer on top of some of these uh, elements, but uh, they're not, we're not inventing a new, uh, you know, lunar landing here. We're just trying to get the, you know, take the starting point and, and upgrade them. But the feedback from the community on developing these new uh, applications would be much appreciated. And if anyone has any trouble, just tweet at Adanish Chopra and I'd be delighted to get you connected to participate. I mean, uh, it's all free, all the documentation's open, and anybody can participate so that in the next 30 to 60 days we have a new round of uh, revisions 
and the goal being by the end of the year have a good solid base of standards that we could take to the public. That's great. I mean, I, my uh, my guess is that that at least one person listening in right now on this webcast is a future case study of these things. So we've yes. had a pretty good track record. Uh, every year I hear a story from someone who was at the Lean Startup Conference. You know, we had Todd Park last year, and we've had a niche before. Like people hear these stories, and periodic someone, you know, there's always somebody who's like, wait, I feel inspired to to give back and to engage in this way. So I encourage anyone who wants to do that. Okay, well, I've been remiss in in asking some of these uh, uh, questions. Uh, questions that are coming in because we're getting a lot. Um, oh, just a quick one. First, someone wants to know, what was the difference in team size between healthcare.gov 1.0 and 2.0? Well, uh, it's obviously a huge contrast, but to be very careful, um, the requirements were a lot different, right? So healthcare.gov 1.0 was probably less than 15, uh, you know, when all is said and done, but it only had a single feature, organize a catalog of existing plans and yeah. expose them in a searchable format. That's basically the extent of it. When you get to healthcare.gov, kind of the main event, obviously you got to qualify people, you got to do a, a financial to transaction. Oh, it's an unbelievably different enterprise. So it ultimately took hundreds of people, you know, uh, when, all, when all is said and done. Uh, but the point is still well taken that is, if the methodology uh, that was used in one had been applied to two, the, the kind of scope and complexity might have been a little bit more. Uh, yeah. differently managed, if you will. Well, the takeaway I want people to, to have is that not that small teams are better than big teams, but if, that, if the 500 people working on healthcare.gov or whatever it was had been organized yes, you know, that's a series point. of two pieces of teams and they had adopted a, a, you know, a more iterative methodology, even a really big team like that could have been super productive, just like that's the right. original <clears throat> healthcare.gov team was. Now, one more comment about that, just on my depression, just to kind of... Yeah. I wasn't involved, none of us got involved in procurement. Where, where the line is drawn is anyone that's a political appointee basically is cut off from procurement because no one wants to be seen as unduly influencing where we sure. spend money. Um, I did, however, uh, had a, a hand in thinking through, we gave a quarter of a billion dollars to the states, Eric, these early adopter states, and we put very explicit provisions that looked a lot like an agile approach, which was all, all the code to be shared and reusable, that states could basically build on top of each other, one could build this service, and if it worked over there, use that service. And that was the philosophy. And uh, politics got in the way that two of the first seven states had Republican governors take over Democratic governors. Mm -hmm. And so the, the Democratic team applied for the grant money in like October. And then by February, when we awarded the grants, you know, Governor Brownback of Kansas was like, thanks, but no thanks. And uh, Governor Fallon, Fallon, how do you pronounce her name, in Oklahoma, thanks, but no thanks. So two of our first seabed, uh, if you will, early adopters. Uh, turned it away just by politics. That, yeah. that made it more painful. Yeah, totally. Okay, uh, let's see what we got here. So uh, rapid fire questions. I can yeah. go quickly. So how do we address? So here's an easy one. How do we address the poor design and incredibly high cost of commonly available medical electronic health record systems? Wholesale APIs. So so the point is, rather than micromanage the big vendors to like make the systems more usable. If they expose the underlying uh, uh, data assets in, in, a, in a wholesaler fashion and you can substitute apps so that the physician's on an iPad from a new startup that allows him or her to better code the cardiac patients in the way that's right for them, it may still feed a data model on the back end from one of the legacy, very thoughtful and high-performing systems. So let others handle that last mile. So we funded an R&D project called SMART, Substitutable Medical Applications. And you can see the results of this at smartplatforms.org. 
And now a lot of that thinking is what led to this open API design. So although that, that was sort of a joke in the way they described it, like this thing really sucks, how do we deal with it? Um, they're great companies in the electronic health record space, but others might be better at bringing that last mile user experience, and they should not be mutually exclusive. exclusive. Mm -hmm, totally. Um, uh, here's another question. Mark Cuban recently criticized the U.S. healthcare industry for being unfriendly to innovation. What will trigger, trigger a change in this industry resistance, and how long do, they, do you think it will take? Uh, payment reform, Eric, is the key. So right now, the industry makes money for each encounter they serve. So basically, what I have no incentive to share data because other than just slowing me down or maybe telling me that I shouldn't be doing what I'm about to do, like, you've already had this uh, x-ray, don't do it again. That actually is right. against my economic interest because you came to me, I have the right to order this x-ray, I can generate income from it, and I'll be able to serve you perhaps in a better way. So the fee-for-service world really emphasizes software that's really good at billing and documentation. <clears throat> but as we move to value-based care, where you're going to get paid more money if the person does not come back into the hospital within 30 days, now I care, did you pick up your med at CVS? And once you picked up your med, did you actually take your pill? Yeah. And can I text message remind you that pollen count has gone up? So if you're an asthmatic, you might want to really take your asthma meds today because it's a particularly bad day, as uh, health systems like Kaiser have been deploying as, as minimum viable products to test out their, their new uh, apps, that's going to change. And once that, once that uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Sylvia Burwell, said 50% of Medicare's payments are going to flow through these pay-for-value models by 2018, and 80% shortly thereafter. So we are on that's a, a lot of money. That's a lot of money, and it's going to drive a lot of change. It's what led Brian Roberts, the legendary healthcare venture capitalist at Venrock, to call healthcare IT previously the backwater of talent to like the front of the pack based on yeah, this. Yeah, it's about to get real yeah. exciting. So you think, you, so to answer this guy's question, you think this is going to happen pretty soon? Yes, it's happening now. I mean, yeah. just looking at early, I mean, I bet you, Eric, you're a seed investor, you're probably getting pitched a, long, a lot about these new business models. Oh, it's exciting. You know, who's going to get to where the puck is heading faster, a startup that's nimble and listening to customers or a legacy firm that's going to still one hand in the optimizing the billing and documentation business as we also have to transition to the new world, I'm going to bet on the startup. Totally. If there's any any of those legacy companies uh, listening in, they need to burn the boats. It's a burn the boats moment. You can't. It's really hard to do both. Okay. All right. Here's a question that that because we haven't really talked about data.gov at all. Yeah. Here's a question. The person says, "I won hashtag hack for Congress," which I don't know what that is, but maybe you do. Sounds great. I won, I won hack for Congress. I didn't know such a thing existed, but it sounds good to me. Congressional staffs want to be beta test sites. Big problem finding clean data. Is there any single source to find orgs working on this issue, i.e. CFA, gov agencies, NPOs, any way that Lean can address the data problem? Yeah, so in effect, um, developing standards around data sources. So uh, it's a phenomenal question, and the reason is the current, what we had done in the first term was take the data as it is and expose it. The source data was not necessarily meant for reuse. So you had this, like, kludgy set of data that was put out in the first iterations of healthcare.gov, of, of data.gov. And what's happening today is people are going back to the root source of the data and asking, can we standardize and improve? So as an example, Code for America has stumbled into the fact that mayors all over the country want to simplify how do you report a complaint to, you know, there's a pothole or, you know, what have you. So rather than having like a thousand mayors standardize different interfaces for how you report a complaint, 
wouldn't it be great if we had kind of a rough consensus running code on how do you get complaints or how do you get the health department to disclose restaurant inspections data? Well, we could do a hundred thousand, you know, thousands of different ways for each local health department, or we kind of get rough consensus running code. And I think the point of it is the um, once you see the value in the reuse of the data, it puts a lot of emphasis on, on going to the source. And Congress, to their credit, has been, I think, unanimous vote of Congress was for the Data Act, which was to instill data standards for the at least the financial data outside of government so we can standardize that. And that, I think, is a hallmark for where we should go next. Awesome. Okay, uh, a, a really good question and we're really glad to have, which is, will Anish be at the Lean Startup Conference? Of course. I can answer that question. Yes, he will. Uh, not only is he going to be speaking and leading a workshop, but he's also joined us as, uh, as part of our new faculty program to help us find other speakers. So I don't know, Anish, if you want to kind of give a sneak preview of what you're thinking about for the conference, but we're very honored that you're going to be able to join us. Yeah. No, thank you, Eric. And, and we've heard a lot of stories about the government, and I think the next phase is, how about this public-private partnership model? And so what I want to do is highlight two uh, case studies. Uh, uh, Leanne Levensailer is the head of product at Workday. And in a project that we had the pleasure of working on together in a kind of a lean startup method, we mapped the unemployed veterans skills gap using data from LinkedIn, the government, Monster, and others. And I want her to celebrate kind of what it was to take a big company with big customers and a, and a day job to focus on the trains. How did we embody those your principles in what was essentially a, uh, a social good endeavor, so this public-private model. And then uh, Karen Austin, who is the Chief Information Officer of Pacific Gas and Electric, I, uh, uh, I will be leaning on her to join for the purposes of the Green Button Initiative. Yeah. Uh, Eric, in the can-do spirit, I literally made one flight to the Bay Area and uh, one phone call to Karen. I said, Karen, will you give energy customers uh, electronic copy of their smart meter data and she said of course I would and let's talk about it and we met for three hours with her colleagues across the utility sector in California and exactly 90 days to the day she had beta tested the first version of Green Button and now it's evolved to an open API that uh, you know it's, is it perfect no but it just every 90 days every six months they're iterating and rolling out new features based on feedback so I hope to bring those case studies uh, of this sort of public-private model for solving problems to the table at, at, at the conference. Uh, we're, we're very lucky to have you. Very glad that that, that you're going to be there. And uh, oh, but I got, I got to ask this question. This was one of our light-breaking questions here. Any chance that pay for value will be derailed by Republicans? No. Or, do or doctors who resent the pressure. I love, I love it's like Republicans or doctors who resent the pressure. Yeah. So, so two things are happening. One is, by the way, uh, uh, pay for outcomes is more closely aligned with how doctors were trained in medical school. They yeah. weren't trained to like optimize fee-for-service billing and coding. And you, you get them out of medical school, and then they get into a clinic, and they're like, okay, you have to maximize billing and coding. Oh, it's and awful. Oh, it's just awful. If you can free them to do what they were put on this God great earth to do, I think, and reward them for it. I think that's where we need to be. And then on the issue of Republicans versus Democrats, there's a political fight over subsidy. Should the government subsidize insurance? But there have been many, many examples of Republicans going back a decade calling for and championing rewards based on outcomes, pay for value as, a, as an example of efficient and effective government that actually President Bush championed uh, this sort of the initial idea of pay for performance. And then 
you know, this idea of markets, marketplaces and exchanges. I mean, we joked about Romney Care was kind of Obamacare before Obamacare, but the Utah uh, government had actually stood up a marketplace that was a lightweight version of what the healthcare.gov, you know, just no subsidies, just a shopping portal that organized a better, a better set of products. So I, I'm, I'm very confident that we're going to be moving forward. There's a, uh, the fight is over the size of the subsidy and the cost, but that just gets sorted out over time. Yeah, well, I got to say, reading your book, um, one of the things that, that, that caught me by surprise, you know, here, here's, here's a future Democratic governor uh, writing a book. And one of the first big case studies was about Ronald Reagan opening up the data from the National Weather Service and and, what, and GPS. Know, like GPS. I was like, wow, that's you know that talk about bipartisanship. That's that's not what I expected, but it was a great story. And, and I have a chapter dedicated to Herbert Hoover, <laughs> uh, the father of the Great Depression, who was Secretary of Commerce and actually created this model of agile, collaborative, you know, applied R and D. And and if it wasn't for his leadership, the U.S. aircraft industry wouldn't have been as successful. He says. I'm going to fund the R&D to fix the two technical barriers in the industry, airfoils and engine cowlings. So you're right, Eric. There's, there's both sides of the aisle celebrate this stuff. That's very cool. All right. Well, we are out of time. Uh, Anish, any final thoughts you want to share? Well, again, I just want to mostly thank you. I mean, I'll do anything for you because you <laughs> help bring a, a mindset to the public sector that we've wholeheartedly embraced. And uh, I'll call on you to keep feeding leads to Todd to recruit to the government. And uh, you know we'll we'll get you in the you'll 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 have to roll you'll take a role in the government at some point, Eric. I don't know when, but it'll happen. And, <laughs> oh, and good anyone, time. Anyone in, in the call today, please join ArgonautProject.org to get in on the Open API for Healthcare. That's the one thing that we desperately need active participants on. So I I appreciate you giving me the chance to to talk about that today. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. And listen, I thank you for your service to to our country. And 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 before that, we haven't even talked about your time in Virginia and the great things you've done there. So. Uh, it's really an honor. It's, uh, this is a great conversation, and look forward to continuing it at the conference. All right. We'll see you at the well, conference. Thank you, All right, sir. Take care. Cheers. Okay. okay. Thank you, Anish. Thank you, Eric. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. This wraps up our show. Please join us again for the next webcast on June 19. In the meantime, visit leanstartup.co for more information on the Lean Startup Conference November 16 to 19 in San Francisco. Bye, everyone. <laughs>